out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you to the end of this interview. As you know, we're always playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade, but we also love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of uh, Zodiac Mind Warp and the Love Reaction, because I spoke to one of the main members of the band, Cobalt Star Gazer, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that usual stuff. This is the interview, and this is where I began with that fascinating question about um, early musical influences. Cobalt, save this interview. It's over to you. Uh, yeah, punk rock. Was that was that grand? Was that the year zero? Because because without giving too much away, I was born in the late uh, mid sixties, so it's kind of the seventies. I remember. Oh, good. Me too. Me too. So I like all the all the regular kind of uh, Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and all those kind of bands. Yeah. And the Osmonds, weirdly, and then. Uh, Punk rock happened, and I actually loved the Stranglers and the Sex Pistols. Not so much the Clash, but that kind of energy, simple energy. Yes. And when did you discover your voice? When did you think I could do this? Oh, well, I met up with Ed in a pub in Clerkenwell, and I said I like three chord songs. And he said, I'd like to be in the kind of sleaziest, dirtiest, rock and rollest band that's ever lived. And I thought, that sounds like a good idea. Yes. So that was it. We were both wearing motorbike jackets and engineer boots at a time that everyone else was wearing spandex. Yes. So that was it. Yes. Because I sort of grew up... Go on. I was going to say, I, I sort of, my, I was quite influenced by my older brother, who was seven years older than me. So during the seventies, uh-huh. I suppose he introduced me to that world that was both prog rock and then a bit of heavy metal with people like Black Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. Yeah, yeah. And then, oh yeah, Deep Purple. That's another good one. Yeah, I love, love Deep Purple. And the one band that everybody kind of you you had to be very careful not to say anything negative about was. Status quo. The quo were the kind of the band. Oh, do you know what? Yeah, but do you know that was? I think that was one of my first ever concerts. The status quo. Yes. And to this day, it's one of the most amazing gigs I ever went to. The well, whole will... place was shaking. And I can remember the sort of quo fan or fans, as there were lots of them. You just couldn't yeah. ever say anything negative without being beaten up by a quo fan. Yeah. I don't know about I don't know about that, but but they um, were so passionate. Yeah. I yeah oh yeah it was it was like a it was like a, some kind of massive gang with with cut off leathers and, and cut off denim jackets and that strange dance where you put your thumb in your your belt buckle. Yes, and you know the one where you kind of you you put your belt loops you put your thumb in the belt loop and kind of wiggle from side to side. Yeah, it was a little where that came from, but that the, was the status quo thing. 
there was a lot of shoulder action. So look, in the early yeah, not much leg action, but lots of shoulder action. Lots of shoulder <laughs> action. I expect they're all. I expect they're suffering now, decades later, with that action. But look, in, in the early eighties, you had that sort of post-punk period. But at the same time, yeah. we, we had the Thatcher's Britain years, which was lots of unemployment. A lot of people were sort of claiming dull yeah. enterprise allowance. Yeah. So what were you doing, sort of, in that period before the band? I was doing a degree in philosophy. Which you, where was the, where were you doing that? North London Polytechnic. Nice. And were you still thinking music or were you thinking degree? Uh, that's a good question. I love to do music, so that's what I love to do. Yes. But also, when you're not doing music, it's good to do something. So I, I enjoyed uh, Socrates and uh, Bertrand Russell. There's people to read about. Yes. And in those days, you got a grant as well, so cash back. So, so uh, look, yeah. So with a lot of, yeah, with a lot of bands that I've interviewed, especially that indie band from the 80s, mm -hmm. I mean, most of them mm -hmm. have a five-year narrative and John Peel plays a big part in this. So, you know, there's a lot of unemployment, people in the, on the dole think, well, mm -hmm. just being a band. They, they, they sort of spend about 12 months fiddling around, making a sound. They get a, they get a single played on John Peel, then a session, then the album. Yeah, Wait, well, you know, he, he helped massively with the mind warp. Unwittingly, really. Because he, if I, if I fast forward, Zed knew a manager called Dave Balfe, who had managed, he was in the Teardrop Explodes and he'd managed, uh, oh, what the f uh, Blur. No, yeah, no, before Blur, it was a band called, lovely, two girls, um, oh, I can't think what they're called now, but, um, <coughs> not, not Voice of the Eye, so he managed them later, but it was an, another band. Oh, I can't think what they're called. But, lovely people, and, he knew Zed, and he thought Zed was fantastic, because he knew Zed from doing cut sleeves. And so, then said to me, Zed said to me, oh, I've got a manager, and I met Balfi, and he seemed okay. That was, the, that was how we started, and then we did some gigs, and then we got a bit of press, and we looked unusual. We, we kind of st stood out from what was going on around us, and our sound was kind of like Alice Cooper and the Stooges. And uh, that was... That was really it. We did one gig at Dingwalls and a whole load of people came down. And then we just played every support gig we could. And we, it wasn't a strategy, but I had a little tiny amplifier. And so we turned up to do the support gigs. And we developed this trick where when Zed was singing, obviously he had his microphone. And when he wasn't singing, he'd come over and put the microphone in front of my guitar amp. So for the guitar solos, the guitar was just explosive out of the amp. So even though we were supporting, it made a bit of a an impact, and we would only do twenty minute sets. So it was out of nowhere. This band would arrive; they'd be absolutely barking mad. The guitar solos were incredibly loud. So there's all sorts of weirdness, and then twenty minutes later, they were gone. We'd take the amp, we'd go home again, and that was the end of it. So it, there was a feeling of who are this weird band who appear out of nowhere and then disappear immediately after the gig. Yes, and it just added to the strangeness of it. Yeah, and that was it. We, we did that for ages, um, and then we did one gig at somewhere called the Rock Garden, and then the next day, seven companies phoned up wanting to sign us. Um, then we were signed, and then we started making records. So it was 
while a lot of bands do this slog around the place sending demo tapes out and all that kind of business, uh, we didn't do any of that. We just we just supported anybody we could to to just practice and have a laugh. Yeah, and that was that. Because actually, because I, did... I was going to say because when I I did an interview with Fast Eddie Clark from Motorhead and they, oh, oh and, they, and they spent years playing and they got to the point where they thought actually it's not going to happen. We'll just play a few more gigs. Record it and then call it a day, and then they manage to get yeah. the label. So your your sort of ability to sort of get to from A to B, which is you know a record label and and sort of yeah. releases, seemed really quick. Was it was it to do with the? Well, it, it was because we were doing that thing of supporting every band. Every time someone said, "All oh, we need is support," we'd do it. We wouldn't get paid anything, but we just do it for the visibility. And because we had a really crummy van and because our amps were little it was it didn't cost us anything so we just turn up blow the place apart and, and disappear again so although it seemed like it, it came out of nowhere we were doing five six gigs a week so we were, we were just playing the hell out of everywhere yeah but it was all support things so no one really you know there, no one really saw it until everyone realized that oh, they'd seen this weird psychedelic band with german helmets and um painted up guitars Doing a kind of a Stooges-y kind of Alice Coopery thing, with the singer with this outrageously phony American accent, and calling everyone star children and generally being groovy, <laughs> and 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 that was it. I mean, I, I wish we had a big plan and we sat and thought very seriously about it, but we just wanted to play as many gigs as we possibly could. Yes, and because it was easy, because it wasn't a theatrical stage set or anything. We could just literally turn up half an hour before, blast the hell out of everything, and pack it all up and go home again. Which is which is ideal, actually. And also, yeah. so we actually we did a lot of playing, although in a really short space of time. Yes, because most bands I've interviewed, they have a kind of, especially the eighties, they have a, that five year narrative. You know, they do the the single after twelve months, the John Peel session, the first right. album, a second album, and then during that period, and if anybody ever tours America, they come back kind of emotionally wrecked and spiritually done uh -huh. in. Yeah, <laughs> we, we had all of that, but so so we 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 played really early on. We played um, a, it was a party. Now I'm trying to remember this. It was at the Embassy Club, and it was Janice Long was a DJ on Radio One, and we played her party. But when we turned up, it sort of slightly got away from us, and we ended up kind of trashing everything. So it was quite a chaotic gig. And so from that, she said, this band are fantastic. Can we do a session? But we'd already been asked by John Peel to do a session. So she nicked that session, and we did it for her. And that, that so Janice Long, funny enough, was a, a start of us getting on the radio, and then John Peel liked it, and it all kind of bubbled up from there. And then... Once we got this, you know, the phonogram record label that we signed to, it all got a bit more serious and we, we became the product then rather than just a gang of mates having a fantastic time. Yes. And were you and, that, and were you at that stage, I mean, obviously during the 80s you had the mainstream sort of sound with that Trevor Horn production and the sort of the Durant yeah. brands. Then you had the indie mm. sound and then you had other bands, a bit like, and, and one band that sort of got very manufactured during that, point was the zig zig sputnik so when you saw them oh yeah i used to like them they used to be our pals i i i used to love them they were really nice guys yes and uh i loved what they did i thought what they did was fantastic but it was you know they went down a different kind of route but um 
I, I, I actually loved what they did. Yes. And did you feel when you when you were sort of putting your image together, did you spend much time sort of discussing <laughs> it with the band? <laughs> I'll be entirely honest and say, not really. Zed had some, some really groovy ideas and he was a graphic designer. So he liked to paint on whatever he could. And in fact, he took my guitar away one one day and when I got it back, he painted it, which was a bit of a shock. But it looked great, all psychedelic kind of painting. So that was his, that was the thing he loved. And then he did it to a plastic German helmet and a, and a Falklands, um, a, a helmet from the Falklands War that used to belong to uh, a roadie called Gimpo, who had served in the Falklands. And he'd stolen this, not stolen, but taken an Argentinian's helmet as a, a souvenir. So Zed psychedelically painted that up and put that on at a gig and suddenly we had a kind of a big thing of all these psychedelic crazies wearing biker gear. I mean, the truth was we wore bike, bike engineer boots and the jackets anyway around the, every day. So it wasn't really, we did, it wasn't really heavily styled, but it did get a bit over the top when we put a bit more paint on the jackets and kind of, when we thought we should be doing a bit more, it got a bit styled. But at the start of it, we just us wearing leather, sweating and uh, having psychedelic helmets on. Yes, well, absolutely. I guess you must and, have uh, been channeling the spirit of Hawkwind in some respects. Well, yeah, yeah I guess there was a bit of that. Uh, there was a bit of that. But we all more, we all came out of the punk rock thing of just have a go. And so it was, it was you know, I loved ACDC and Thin Lizzy, absolutely adored Thin Lizzy. And Zed liked Alice Cooper. But it was kind of us having a go at that kind of music. Yes. That, that's you know it was it it was a lot more homemade you know looking back on it I I'd like to say oh we thought it was a big master plan and we thought it all out but we didn't really we just thought this looks like a laugh we look fantastic let's just fucking rock out and see what happens absolutely and, and uh, that was it so when you came to sort of doing the first album tattoo beat yeah. fire um yeah, yeah. obviously you, you brought out an EP before that the high priest yeah well, well funny enough I think love had the best songs on it so. When when we we just bashed out an EP because it seemed to be when, when we signed the program it we, we became a product and it was all very considered and we we thought well let's just do a let's do a mini album or an EP to just just get these songs out of the way and then we'll go into doing the you know all the kind of corporate business and so we just went in and thrashed out this really low-fi um, EP quickly. But looking back on it, I think they were my favourite songs. So when we came to do an album, it took a bit longer, and we had a bit of a bit of kind of some of the crappier songs managed to make their way onto the record to make it long enough. I think. Right, tricky. And did you? And I mean, during that time, one thing that sort of often knocked a lot of bands out that I've interviewed has been, I mean, going from sort of, I mean, the the fan is a fickle thing, really. They go from one thing to another, or they get to an age where they've got to sort of decide they've got to work oh, yeah. or, or get a home together. So, you know, okay. by, by, by the sort of the, the late 80s, the ecstasy world had sort of kicked in. Did you feel... Oh, yeah, yeah. And how did that sort of start to affect the band when you realised that things were well, moving? to be honest, it, it didn't really... It, honestly, it didn't. Um, Bill, because Bill Drummond was involved right at the start of us. Um, he had um, what did Bill have? Bill had publishing. Oh, Bill had pub publishing, and Bill and David Balfour worked together. And Bill, 
Phil and Jimmy. Jimmy was the first guitar player for the Love Reaction before I joined it. And so Bill and Jimmy went off and did the KLF. Yeah. So we we were involved right at the start of it all because they were our pals and you know we would kind of hang around it and, and they did their first album. The KLF did their first album on our studio time for the Tattoo Beat Messiah. When we'd finished recording, they'd go in in the evening and do their album for free. We didn't mind, but I thought it was a great idea. So so it was a because Darcy and uh, Bill Drummond. I think he was producing the Tattoo Beat Messiah album with Balfe. Yeah. I can't remember, but he was always hanging around the studio. So they did their record on on our downtime, which is called the 1984 record. So it was all kind of happening. It was all happening around us, if you, if you know what I mean. It, was, yeah. it, was all, it wasn't like, oh, here's a different thing. It was just, oh, our pals are doing this. It sounds fucking great. And, and that was it. And I, I worked with this fellow called Guru Josh, who was nuts, but lovely. And uh, I did some touring with him, and then I started playing at raves, and so we were doing all that kind of stuff, but just not as the love reaction, because the love reaction was, you know, biker jackets and and rocking out kind of big thumping riffs. But where I was doing all the rave stuff, and Guru Josh and Zed was doing with Youth, and uh, um, Bill and Jimmy were doing their own thing. It, it was all, it was sort of like part of the same thing, but just what you do at the weekends. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I, I interviewed Guru Josh during the late 80s when he was playing in Great Yarmouth. Um, that's because he had, he had the big single, didn't he? The trouble is he didn't, yeah, it, he didn't have his second was, single. Uh, well, no, well, it was, it was, there was a saxophone on it and it was something about, I, I can't remember what it was. He's a lovely fella. It was really nice. I liked him a lot. Time we had a Guru. time. Yes, he was quite something. played a rave. I went and played a rave with him in Mexico uh, back in the, what were we doing in the 80s? And, and a big show in Los Angeles with him. Yes. Uh, I think it might, it might be called Now is the Time. I can't remember what it's, is it Now is the Time or something like that? Now is the Time for the time. Guru. Yes. That's the one, that's the <laughs> one, yeah. I, I loved him to bits. He was absolutely fucking barking mad, but a really nice fella. Yes. So what was your tour yeah. like? You were touring in 88 with Alice Cooper and Guns N' Roses. Yeah, yeah well, we did Appetite for Destruction in uh, the US with Guns N' Roses. They were lovely fellas. So I, I met them first. Um, in, there was a club called The Limelight. They used to be uh, off Charing Cross Road. There was a club called The Limelight. And it, was a, a bit, it sounds like a funny story, but I was in, this, I was in the, the bar and... There was a band, and I went off to get a drink. I don't know, and and one of the fellas was cheesing up my girlfriend at the time. So, I, you know, I came back and was a bit pissed off with it all, and grabbed him and put him in an arm lock and said, you don't know who you're fucking about with, which is a bit embarrassing now, but that's what I said. And he turned around and said, why, who are you? And I said, I'm Cobalt from Zedit. My wife's a love reaction. And he went, fucking hell, high priest of love. I love that. My name's Slash. <laughs> so we, I immediately let him go, and then I met Duff and uh, a couple of the boys, and and then it was you know then we had a nice time, and then the next thing I knew we'd been invited onto their North American tour to do the Appetite for Destruction tour. Yes. So we did that for for a while, and the wicked blokes, I, I I loved them to bits. Lovely, lovely fellas. Yeah. You know, it, it was. I I never Axel was a bit of a knob. But actually, you know, he, he was he had a, he had a few thing issues going on, so it was he, he just was having a trouble 
dealing with the pressure of it all being quite so so big. And so we'd you know you'd have strops and the band would have to go into blues jams for a bit until he calmed down and came out again. <laughs> but, you know that it didn't seem to affect anything. They, you know the band did brilliantly well, and um, when they were when they were playing, they were fantastic. Actually, a funny story. I, I got in because I, I was hanging about with Duff a lot and, and Slash. They're nice folks. And they said, "Come on stage and sit, sit on the amps. You can get a good view." Because it started, it was a co-headline tour. But where they where they played second, we sort of me and Slam sat at the back of the amps and watched the band. And the only reason we stopped was there was one gig when Axel came out wearing chaps with a, a red copiece and nothing on his behind. And I spent an hour watching Axel's little bottom jiggle about in front of me while they were doing all their songs. And I thought, yeah, I think I've seen enough of the band now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I didn't bother watching them anymore. But Wicked, I got honestly, Wicked band. When they were, when they were, sometimes they were terrible. But sometimes we were terrible too. It's, but when they were great, they were absolutely fantastic. When you know, some days it was all happening, and some days one of them was pissed off, one of them was a bit drunk or whatever, and it would it would just get away from them. But that's rock and roll, you know. That's what it's about. It's not about if it's the same measured performance every night, then the, someone's being cheated. It should be passion and energy, and sometimes it doesn't quite come off. Yes. Well, I I do remember yes. I remember Z- Iggy Iggy Pop saying that he couldn't really create or write those kind of classic songs that he did back in those days in the seventies, especially because I think he said something about being, he couldn't be that messed up and still holding it together just enough. To be... <laughs> it's a, it's a fine, it's well, a fine thing. Isn't it's it? a really, it's a really difficult thing. Cause if you're not fucked up at all, then the music gets really boring. I know it's awful to say, I wish it didn't, but it's true. You know, uh, some of the some of the excitement comes from from going to places you don't really want to go to, but it's a you know I wish I wish you could just have a lovely life and write great songs, but sometimes it, 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 it it's not like everyone who gets fucked up does great things, but sometimes you go into a different state and it'll it'll make you turn a corner you didn't expect to. Yes, well I I kind of remember I think one of the the blonde guitarists in Status Quo saying that he. would been sort of given some speed kind of by yeah. and and sort of spent 12 hours just playing a riff and eventually came up with one of the classic status quo riffs in that kind of 12 hours of being speeding right. off the head so um yeah, yeah. It, it does have so look when you when you turn when we turned into the 90s you'd brought out your second album and you'd and the first album hadn't sold so well so what was the process like making well, that? You know, it's, it's a funny thing because actually the, the first album actually sold quite well, did sell quite well. I know it sounds like that it, it went, was it silver or something? And it, it sold quite a lot of records in America, which which I always used to think that was funny because when, you know, when it all, when we went south with the record company, actually that record was quite profitable because we made it quite cheaply, but it, it was, it doesn't matter. It's, you, know, you never want the truth to get in the way of a good story, so... It's an easier story to say that record was a massive flop and that was the end of it. But, yeah. but yeah, it was quite funny that. So the first one sold quite well. The second one I thought was a really terrible record. I loathed it, but um, we went down a funny path with the fellow who had been kind of the programmers for KLF. Lovely bloke, but the record didn't sound very good because we sort of half did machines and half did guitars. And it, you know, it, it's a, 
it's a bit of a difficult balancing act that one. And we were we were a bit too um I think we were a bit too experimental on it. Yes. It was your it was your low album, the David Bowie low album, wasn't it? Well, yeah, we just thought let's let's do something different because you know we we've, we've if you've done if you've been touring and touring and touring doing the same kind of thing and you get a chance to do different music, sometimes you just want to do something completely different. Now actually, it's probably better if you just do that and throw it away and then go back to what you're doing because people didn't really want us to be doing electronic weirdness. They just wanted us to do kind of Stooges, Alice Cooper rock, but. But you only learn that in hindsight. Yes. So when you finished that album, there wasn't, you didn't, I mean, it was a few years before you brought out One More Knife. Did it feel quite difficult to keep the... Oh, God. Yeah. Well, we did Hoodle and Thunder one, and then, and then we did quite a lot of playing. We, we played quite a lot in different countries. And then we had an idea to go to Spain and record this record in Spain, the One More Knife record. And... It was, it was, a, it was a strange. We were in Madrid. We did the record in Madrid, and it was quite a strange time. And I haven't heard that record for years. But um, yeah, it was. I don't know. I, I think the fun had gone out a bit at that point. Yes, which is always tricky. Yeah. So then. So then, what happens next after that? Uh, blimey. Um, I don't entirely remember. What was the record we did after that? Uh, you did one called oh, I Am Rock. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, again, that was an experimental thing because we'd started to be dabbling with home recording and going to strange places to do records and record things in different places. And just, it was... One of, one of the things with the Mind Warp is that we're always very experimental within that kind of really, really formulaic thing of heavy rock. We're very experimental, so we were trying to do stuff with the computers programming and uh, going down that, that road. Yeah, that was a strange record. Yes. I, 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 and I think we did one called Rock Savage. There seems to be a rock theme going on with that, which I don't know... I think if I was charitable, I'd say it got away from us a bit. We just went down the strange experimental route because one of the one of the things that's the you know we we said it almost love reaction. It was kind of an art rock band, but not many people realised it. Yes. So how were you coping with an art rock band? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, how were you coping at this stage, keeping the band together? Because by then you'd sort of Quite a few members have sort of come and gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, um, Haddish went off and joined the cult. He was the first one who left. He joined the cult, and then um, Slam went off to uh, play drums with Alice Cooper. And then um, we had Raven from Killing Joke in our band for a bit, and we had a few bass players. We had Alex James from Blur in our band for a, a, a while. We did some gigs with. And it, no one ever, no one ever got fired. But people left and went off to do other things. And so Zed, you know, Zed and me have always been in it. And then a different drummer and a different bass player would sometimes join in the sessions. Yes, which is kind of like. So, do you feel 
with you and Ed, you're like the kind of Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> no, no, no. We're we're not as good as that. We're but yeah, there there are two of us, and if we get together, it because I get my wants and love reaction, and if we're not together, it's not. Mm-hmm. And other people can join in, and it's always fantastic. And there's always various permutations of of you know good players and good fun. But um, so far, it's just myself and Ed who've been the kind of constants in it. Yes, and do you and. Sorry. And you've also published quite a bit as well, haven't you? Um, yeah, Zed, well, Zed's written some books. Yeah. And um, the, the Feed My Frankenstein song was um, was successful for Alice Cooper and was in the Wayne's World film. And Zed now paints. He does a lot of painting. And, uh, yeah, it's all, it's all kind of strange things going on. I did some music for um, a Vivian Westwood fashion show, so... We do different things from time to time. Yes. And now you still... And what are your plans for the next couple of years? Um, well, we've got some songs that we recorded last year. Now, Zed just got ill, unfortunately. Zed had a stroke, so um, he's still recuperating. So he's not ready to uh, to be singing them yet. So hopefully he'll be getting better and singing them, and then we'll put some some more music out. Yes, I mean, just because I, I enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And do you sort of find um, when you play live, you've got a very passionate sort of audience who are sort of desperate to still come? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. It's the audience always want to hear the old songs, which fair enough. You know, they grew up with those songs, and that's what they want to hear because it reminds them of their youth. So that's cool, and we'll play the old songs. But I'm always interested in the new old songs. But that's that's uh, I'm not really someone who looks backwards. I prefer looking forwards on things. But, yes. Um, yeah, it's all cool. I mean, this uh, Saturday I'm going up and uh, doing some jamming with Rob the drummer and some other people from another band just to see what see if there's a vibe for something else. So yeah, it's always good to keep experimenting and keep doing things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that often catches bands out and and artists is is kind of dealing with the admin and the publishing. Did you manage to navigate that? Yeah. Well, you, you have management, you have publishing companies to to do that. So there's not you know there's not much admin really. We really have to do. No. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's fraught with people taking your money. That's you know because generally musicians are considered to be idiots. So where there's money, there's someone trying to take it off you. So that, that you know, we've, we've been sued a couple of times and um, um, just generally had people trying to run off with money of ours. But that's, you know, <laughs> that's the game. Yes. If you swim in the sea, you have to be aware there are sharks in there. And every now and again, you're going to get your toes nailed. Which is tricky, which is very tricky. I know there's a fantastic Hunter S. Thompson quote about sort of the music industry and sort of the thieves and liars and pimps that sort of feel <laughs> which is always quite yeah, it really, but it really is it's funny because it, it, you know the, the, the thing i was used to think about the mind war which made me laugh was right at the start of it in fact when we were on tour with motorhead we, we all watched sat down and watched um, spinal tap and laughed and thought it was fantastic and then we made every single mistake they make and i still think that's funny now having seen how a band goes wrong we then did exactly the same thing ourselves yes 
this is so tricky. And do you have sort of fond memory? Because to be honest, there's a couple of artists that I always adore. One's David Bowie, the other one is Lemming. I mean, do you did you have sort of fond memories of touring with Motorhead? Yes, very much. Lemmy was a fantastic bloke, a real, really lovely. He was really lovely to me, absolutely lovely to me. Really, really, he was a cool guy. Yes. Um, yeah, loving to bits. Very sad he died. He was a great bloke. I met a fast bloke, Eddie Clark, came into our studio when we were recording one time in, uh, oh God, somewhere in London, I can't remember. And we had Will, Will Reed Dick, who was an engineer, an old Lizzie engineer. And he um, he was there, so fast Eddie came to say hi. And it, it was like, that was, it was very exciting. That was For me, that was very exciting. Because you know, Lemmy was a pal, so that was just Lemmy. But when Fast Eddie appeared, it was like, ooh, that's someone special. <laughs> Weird, isn't it? Yes. But yeah, I got a, a massive, I, I loved Lemmy to bits. He was such a, such a gent and so, uh, so, so nice to me. He was really, he really helped me a lot. And also, I mean, one, one thing that I've noticed with the passing of time, which is sort of 25 years to 30, is, is that people start sort of, I don't know, there's books that start coming out, people start archiving photographs there's been quite a few films made recently of bands like the chill right. the go-betweens and the wedding present uh, you know l7 the slits i mean has any been has there been any sort of kind of interest no in... no well zeb wrote some books zeb wrote a couple of books about the band and it was the other day it dawned on me that we've got we've had quite a strange set of each sort of lineup of people in our band that yeah, obviously there was Zed and then Bill and Jimmy, so they did the KLF and we did we played at um uh, Damien Hurst, one of his exhibitions. And so there's this strange artistic kind of thing around the mind warp. But, um no, Zed wrote a couple of books about the band and uh I think that's probably enough. <laughs> Certainly I don't archive I you know, I haven't got a an archive of anything because you just do it and then you move on. Yes, but you wrote, you co-wrote a, a book with Bill Drummond, didn't you? Bad Wisdom. Oh, that yeah, that was it. Zed, that was one of Zed's. Yeah, that was that was that was good. They did quite a lot. They went to Africa and uh, they took a Punch and Judy show to Africa. Yeah, they they did all sorts of strangeness. But um, yes, it is. You know, there was quite, there was quite a bit of that going down. And Bill's still doing. Actually, last I heard, Bill was doing something about soup, where he'd turn up to someone's house and make soup. But it's, you know, it's, you do things and then it seems like a good idea and then you do something else. It's, it's not a, there's no master plan. No. If something seems like a good idea, you do it. And if it doesn't, then, you know, you just don't do it. Yes. And what would you um just what would you say to an eighteen year old self that was starting out? Or what would what do you sort of wish you could have said to yourself back then when you were beginning? If someone uh, could have just... I would have said drink less. Not that I'm an alcoholic or anything, but I would have said drink less and enjoy it more. Because when you're doing it, the worry is always what's going to happen next and what's going to be the result. And sometimes you miss the fun bit, which is the bit you're doing, you're always busy thinking about the next step. And now I don't think about the next step. You think, I wish then I hadn't thought about the next step so much and just enjoyed what you were doing. Yes. It was very, it was, it was very carefree within, you know, 
having said having said that, it was quite carefree, but I was always busy concerning myself with the next thing. And always looking forward to the next thing instead of just enjoying the thing that was going on at the time. Yeah. It's interesting because actually a lot of people have said they wish they'd lightened up and just... Yeah, because it does. You know, you're always racking your brains thinking about the next song and the next gig and how can I play the guitar faster or something, you know, change the sound or do something. And actually, it doesn't really matter. If people like it, just do it. And one of the things that we did with this experimentation is actually the band were known as one thing. So why were we so crazily bent on doing something different? Why didn't we just do the thing we were good at? Yeah. And when you yeah. and when you sort of just flick back through the archive, which is the, the sort of the font you know, your fondest memory of, you know, being in the studio or the or the song Ooh. that you thought that really captured the moment? Uh High Priest of Love, that was a good one that I liked. I liked the High Priest of Love. That was it. That was off the first EP. That was the first one that was a decent song that we had. Yeah. Um, and play, oh, I got to play to Spades with Motorhead on stage with them. That was a point where I thought, fucking hell, this is good. We were at some kind of Odeon, and it was Wurzel, who was a guitar player for Motorhead at the time, said, will you come on stage and play with us? And I said, oh, I don't know. You know, he's let me all right with it. He said, yeah, yeah. So I had a guitar and I went on stage and I did Ace of Spades with them. The funny thing about playing on stage with Motorhead was I didn't hear any of it. I heard the counting, I heard the drums, and then there's a bit where the bass starts. And then there was just a wall of just whooshing jet engine noise. And I was playing the guitar. I could, I could see the frets and I could, you know, I knew I was in the right bit playing the right string in the right fret. I couldn't hear it. It was just unbelievably loud. It was like it was like they'd got the PA behind them. It's normally you have the amps in the back line at a reasonable volume. So you can you know, it's good and loud, but it doesn't kill you. But Motorhead's back line was unbelievably loud. That I look back on and think, oh, that was cool. That was cool. <laughs> and, and playing playing one of the big um, Los Angeles arenas, that was good. And yeah. doing a moonwalk on top of a a wall around the perimeter of this um, kind of open-air stadium thing. That was good. There were things that I remember as fun. The, the studio was never really fun because it, it was work. It was putting a song down and performing it. So there was, I didn't really enjoy it. It was That was more about tension and performance. But the fun... Oh, and I did the thing where we, we all mimed a Belinda Carlisle song on European telly. That, that was fun. That, that was just a riot, an absolute riot. So there were good things. On, you, know, you can think of good things. Yeah. And do you feel kind of blessed that you have had this kind of... Oh, God, yeah. God, yeah. And also this friendship that you've had with um, Ed. Yeah, it was Ed. Yeah, yeah, it was Ed. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're you know, we're... We're um, we're pals, and we always have been pals. Sometimes we've fallen out, but it never lasted very long. Yes, but it sounds like the and band never. It sounds like the band never had any kind of major issues or major sort of angst that some people do. No, no, not really, not really. Um, no, we, we didn't. Uh, it wasn't really a. I, I think it wasn't really a druggy kind of band. 
which is a funny thing because everyone expected it to be, but it wasn't. It was a you know, it was Jack Daniels fueled, but it wasn't wildly druggy. So, so it was. We were quite amiable. You know, it wasn't like anyone was strung out or having terrible times. Yeah. The worst that we had was we'd have a hangover and everyone would laugh. And also, we had a, we had a gold we had a couple of golden rules. One of the golden rules was you were allowed two what we called radges on tour, which meant you were allowed to have hissy fits. You were allowed to have two hissy fits. That was acceptable. So if someone had a hissy fit, we'd all laugh and say, oh, you've had one of your hissy fits now. And the other rule was we went on stage sober, which always amazed everybody because everyone thought we were off ahead all the time. But we weren't. We went on stage sober. I mean, you could have one beer or something, but it was the show was the show. It wasn't. We weren't drunk. We were just having fun. Yes. So they were the they were the only two. I mean, they were the only two. Oh, we had a third rule, which was don't sleep with your with each other's girlfriends, which was always a sensible thing to have for a band. <laughs> yes, unless you want to do fleet. Yes, that's because that could go horribly wrong. Otherwise, it would go very home. Yes. Yeah. So just so we didn't. We, uh, so we yeah we didn't break those rules. No. Well, that's good. Well, it sounds like you've you know so far so good, and still another decade to go. Yeah, we're good. Well, we're going to do some recording and uh, yeah, have fun. We won't be doing big tours and things, but. Um, and yeah, you know, we. But it's just nice. It's just nice. I still like making music. So as I say, I'm going to go up and do some new things this weekend. So yeah, kind of psychedelic rock, which is always good. It's always good. And is um is your lead singer? Is he recovering from the strike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll be. He'll be. He was. It, I think it shook, shook his confidence more than everything. That was the bit that that got him. And he's he's okay. He, he, you know, he it was a stroke, so it's it's never great. But he's he hasn't been incapacitated. But it's just, I think it's just knocked his confidence. So we just need to wait for the confidence to build again. Yes, I think I think it's kind of interesting when you have one of those moments because you feel very vulnerable suddenly and not so. Yeah, yeah he does. He did does. And but hopefully, he'll come back. Yeah. So the voice is still there. Oh yeah, because but he just he's a bit frail and and needs him, you know, just build him back up again. He'll get there, but it's the worst thing we would do now would be to pressure him and try and do gigs immediately. Just wait till he's till he's he's kind of got his strength back a bit. Yeah, well, I hope it all goes. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Me too. In the meanwhile, I say I'm doing this other bit of playing just for the fun of it, just to keep my hand in. Yeah, and do you and are you based in LA now? No, no, I'm in um, Bermondsey in London now. Okay. A place in Bermondsey and in uh, Brixton. Right. Did you ever live in America? Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. We, we did quite. We we were popular in America, popular in Los Angeles. Yeah. But, um. Yeah, we're we're Londoners now. Well, it's all good stuff. Well, look, thank you. And just to check, sometimes I get a bit confused with people's names. Mark Manning. So I'm. So that's Mark, so Mark Manning, Zed, the singer, and I'm Cobalt. That's as simple as that. That's fine. I know. Right. I got you now. I know. It's like, oh my god, I'm getting confused. I'm. I'm sort of. Yeah, don't worry. It's it's easily confusable. Easily yeah. confusable. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much, and I'll. My I'll pleasure. You when I put it out, and I'll send you a link. If you oh, think. great.
And uh, Excellent. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to. That's really cool. Okay, well, Thank take you care. Thank very much. Thanks a lot, Cobalt. Yeah, you too. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, have fun. See bye. ya. Bye.